The average turkey, John, Thanksgiving Day turkey, weighed 17 pounds in 1960. It's up to 31 pounds now. And if you overlay simply the chart of the S&P 500 over that same time frame, obviously the S&P's gone higher. So the playful joke is, hey, as turkey weight goes higher, we consume more turkeys, the S&P's gone higher. Of course, it's not that simple. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, John. How's it going today? Thanksgiving week. We made it. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot for which to be grateful. And uh, I know you are certainly grateful given uh, the soccer championship that I'm sure you want to discuss. That's right, John. I coach both of my boys, Gus and Sebastian, and it's the U9, so under nine soccer league in Tiga K, where I live here in South Carolina. And um, we moved Gus up a level. He's t- he was pretty good at his own level. So I said, I want to coach him both. So we moved him up to play against older kids. And the Knuckleheads was our team name. And believe me, if you ever watched our practices, we probably deserve that Should name. Should have been the but, name of the coach. But <laughs> oh, it, it, believe me. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Apple didn't fall too far from the tree. And my close buddy and I coached him. And we've been doing, this is our fourth season together, so two times a year. And we finished third and second every time. But long story short, we finished 11-0. and We won the tournament. And I think the final was 49 goals. We scored only one allowed. So we were uh, crushing people. But the final was only one to nothing. And Sebastian, actually, my my oldest son, he scored the winning goal, and he was named team MVP. They gave him a nice little ball, and he was all excited. So it was a – yeah, it was was, um, a very long season. Two hurricanes and rain every day of the month of November really pushed the season back pretty Mm -hmm. far. Uh, But it it was supposed to end October 27th, and it ended just last Friday. But, hey – it all worked out in the end, so and it was Bashy a lot of fun. So scored the goal. Congratulations. Proud Papa. Yes, it was fun. And, Thank uh, you. Now you we're say, on the football. You say Gus <laughs> is uh, six years old playing with the U9, so I'm sure Lionel Messi, when he was six years old, he probably played with the Nines uh, also. Yeah, so. he would score two and three goals a game against kids his own age. I wanted a little more competition, and it's just easier to have one practice. And he had a lot of fun playing with his brother and his older brother's friends. So, And he scored a couple goals, and he was really good. So we're looking forward to the spring when he just gets that much older and that much more aggressive. So right, yeah, anybody, it was fun. Any uh, EPL soccer? fantasy fans you know you want to go long on uh bassy bashy and gus that's right going forward not so much the coach but yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> it's also thanksgiving week so uh again as we said a lot for which to be thankful and uh wish everyone uh a safe and very happy time with family and friends over the next several days certainly safe with the travels that's for sure no, that- i know you you're packing everybody in the car that's right. We yeah, two kids, three kids. Sorry, I'm just getting my daughter there. Three kids and two dogs. What I meant to say. So mm-hmm. we're throwing everyone in the in my wife's big SUV, driving up to Ohio here soon. So it'll be. Um, I don't know what it'll be, John. Hopefully you see me again. Hopefully we all survive and don't get too mad at exactly. each other. Eight and a half yeah. hour drive. We'll make it though. Scenes in my head of Christmas Day vacation. So be careful on I, that. I know that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Uh, you do some. Uh, uh, Historically, you've done some Thanksgiving analysis on the markets. Care to share with that with our listeners? That's right, John. Now, first things foremost, let's get this out there. Don't invest on this. This is a playful one, but <laughs> you know it's Thanksgiving. So we, who doesn't love Thanksgiving turkey? I guess we're going to see forty-six million turkeys in the U.S. That estimated. That's right, oh my, forty-six million. I don't know. If that, is that a new record? You know, I mean, that sounds like that a lot. Is, that is the record. Okay, that's what I figured. So you know, you look at the USDA keeps all this data, and we did a playful blog last year. Might update it here this year, and actually, this chart will be in the notes on today's podcast. But the average turkey, John, Thanksgiving Day turkey, weighed seventeen pounds in nineteen sixty. 
It's up to 31 pounds now. And if you overlay simply the chart of the S&P 500 over that same time frame, obviously the S&P has gone higher. So the playful joke is, hey, as turkey weight goes higher, we consume more turkeys, the S&P has gone higher. Of course, it's not that simple. But it's kind of interesting. Your face is looking at me like you're kind of shocked. I'm serious. It's 17 pounds in 1960. The average turkey is over 31 pounds as of, I think it was September of 2018. We just bought a 17-pound turkey, and I had to go to the chiropractor, so I can't imagine 31 pounds. Well, that's... um. Yeah, I guess there's some big ones going on out there. So that's um, you know, it's according to the USDA's website, kind of kind of fun, playful one. But oh, wow. we, we like our big turkeys for Thanksgiving, no doubt about it. Well, we'll need that turkey for our energy. How's that for a segue? Because today uh, we'd like to talk about oil prices because oil certainly played into the market discourse over the past several weeks. The impact of a lot of concerns about slowing global growth has affected corporate credit spreads. And clearly, Brexit is front and center in every headline our investors are, are reading each and, each and every morning. So today, let's focus on oil credit spreads and Brexit. And first off, on oil, Ryan, clearly a technical breakdown. We were at record levels, what, October 3rd, I believe it was, as recently as October 3rd? Exactly. 3rd or 4th. Uh, Oil's up yeah. 77 bucks a barrel. Mm-hmm. And uh, plunging out to $56 a barrel. So there have been a lot of concerns there, certainly uh, concerns about slowing global growth. You had the Iran sanctions. That was a, uh, a big issue. But in addition to the Iran sanctions, there were a lot of exemptions for seven or eight countries that could still do business with them. And then, you know, the dynamic that's kind of different now is the U.S. is the world's swing producer now. Right. So rendering OPEC less effective than, uh, than previously they've been. So when you factor in concerns about slowing global growth, when you factor in, you know, the old adage that... Uh, the only cure for higher oil prices is higher oil prices, right? Because right. Uh, producing countries need to need to break even, so they'll pump out as much as they can to be profitable, and that becomes a self-fulfill or the the opposite of a self-fulfilling prophecy because then oil prices decline because of overproduction. So you're starting to see that now. Clearly, the administration and political leaders want to see lower oil prices because that translates into lower gasoline prices, which frees up consumption funds for other for other personal spending. But when we see oil currently, uh, clearly a breakdown technically, the Iran sanctions, uh, not only is the U.S. producing more, but you're seeing it elsewhere for the leading producers. Uh, the strong dollar has also played into that, right, because commodities are priced in, in the U.S. greenback. So there, there are several factors there going on. You see anything technically that we should be uh, optimistic about? Yeah, we do, John. You know, it's like you said, October 3rd, crude oil is about 77 bucks a barrel down 27% from there as of Friday, at least. Uh, that's one of the, again, making a 12-month high, not all-time high, but a 12-month high in early October. It's one of the quickest bear markets ever from a 12, obviously, from a 12-month high that we saw in the month of October. But, you know, you mentioned swing, the U.S. being a swing producer. Here's an interesting stat. U.S. now creates, or produces, I'm sorry, 11 million barrels a day, up 23% year over year, and mm-hmm. double what the U.S. was creating 10 years ago. So right there, you talk about supply and demand. Well, there's a lot more supply out there. But purely technically, the level that we've kind of been talking about is 55. You know, 55 was resistance a couple of years ago. Potentially, it can be support. So that's, again, right where we're flirting right now. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the low end of the range, what we think here. Uh, when it comes to crude oil from a purely technical point of view. But bottom line, from that fundamental point of view, hey, it's historically oversold. So some type of a bounce probably makes sense. As that supply we just talked about, though, I mean, what do you think, John? It's probably not going to bounce right back up to 80, right? I mean, there's so much supply that it's probably going to you know, hover with mid-60s. That's exactly right. We're looking about mid-60s in mm-hmm. oil over the next 12 months. And uh, you've got that 
what had once been resistance can now be support in the 55 level. And we were trading about 56.50 this morning before we uh, plugged into this podcast. And um, we think going forward, the end of the month, we have the OPEC meeting in Vienna. So you're going to see increased commentary leading up to that, in our opinion. And I think ultimately you'll see some degree of production cuts, uh, at least an agreement on production cuts, which the market should respond to. Now, whether or not you actually see those production cuts is a completely different scenario. Uh, but nonetheless, you will likely see country oil-producing countries commit to production cuts for 2019, and the market should respond favorably to that. To the degree that they actually fulfill that is the next leg in truly finding support where we think we can get to that uh, that mid-60 level on energy prices. Right. Now, what's interesting, though, so we did have, obviously, a crude oil bounce, you know, second, third quarter this year, really, until October before the sell-off. And if you look at the energy stocks, though, John, the surprising thing, I think, to a lot of people scratching their heads, energy stocks did not participate in that rally. You think crude oil making 77 bucks a barrel, 12-month highs, energy might be a little stronger. Energy had solid earnings this year, year over year off of really low levels. At the same time, it didn't partake. And then, sure enough, crude cracked and had this bear market. And obviously, the energy stocks then were really hit hard. So they've really lagged uh, crude at historical levels. And again, I know in this podcast, um, in the notes section, we have a good chart that shows just that, where crude oil was going up, energy stocks didn't participate, and now crude oil goes down and energy gets hit. What do you think about the investment side of things when it comes to the energy sector and crude and how it all plays out here, John? You know, as you're talking about that, I'm just thinking how this has been an unloved bull market, right? Mm-hmm. All too often, it's you know going on nine or 10 years now, and people still refer to it as a rally yeah. and don't embrace it as a bull market. And the energy space really, I think, is emblematic of that or symptomatic of that when you consider 100 or 130 or 140 percent earnings growth on some of these major major energy companies, yet the stocks haven't participated. So there's there's a disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, the, the skeptic could say, you know, 100 percent of nothing is still nothing, while the stoic could say, you know, you've seen, right. you know, firming in production, firming in demand, and three and a half, three point seven percent global growth should bode well. Nonetheless, there's there's been a lack of belief, and that's why I think you see the pressure on the, on the stocks. And until OPEC really comes up with some sort of production cut announcement, you're unlikely to see really that firming. And it comes down to production also, particularly when you look at the U.S. I think about when I first started my career, it would take months and months for production in in uh, producing fields to to ramp up. Now it's literally the flip of a switch. Right. So it really can, you know, you're that much more efficient now. And perhaps that's why it's it's really more dependent in the energy space, more on, you know, trading patterns as opposed to underlying supply and demand. And, you know, I, I want to emphasize to our listeners that we do not believe that falling oil prices are, are any indication of slowing global growth. There, there, there's some obviously some fear of that. But it's really a, it's a it's a growing supply issue as opposed to a falling demand issue in our in our estimation. Uh, that's a great way to summarize everything. A great way probably to wrap it up. I mean, I will say, John, you know, by the time people listen to this podcast, they can go to lplresearch.com. We have a nice blog that talks about a lot of the big things we just talked about when it comes to the energy market and what's going on with energy, energy stocks here. Provide so, more clarity, which is always our goal, right? Exactly. So, John, so any other comments on energy? Are you ready? Well, yeah, I'm good, I'm good on that. I think we're transitioning okay. to. Yep. The, the impact that it's had on exactly. credit spreads, right? That's right. So, John, credit spreads are in the news again. Um, you know, I'm seeing multi-year highs. When you look at what credit spreads are doing, we all have flashbacks when we hear the credit markets. You think who's the smartest guy in the room? 
a lot of people think the bond market, and that's kind of the credit credit markets, those credit spreads. If they're expanding, it shows there's maybe some stress and some worry. Again, the flashbacks are in 2006, 2007. We saw credit spreads blow out, and we all know what happened. 54% correction in the S&P 500, 90, 89 or 90% correction in most financial stocks, bank stocks. You know, I don't think we're uh, anticipating something like that. But how worried should we be, obviously, with the credit spreads expanding here across the really across the curves? Various credit spreads are making some worrisome signs here. We should always be mindful of credit spreads to the degree that the bond market is signaling something. We always must embrace that. But we've talked to our investors and we've talked to our listeners on this podcast how, when they were flattening credit, f- flattening Treasury yield curve uh, spreads. We emphasized that we thought it was more of a valuation on the long end because of global demand for U.S. Treasuries at 3% as opposed to the German boon, say it, right. yielding 30 basis points, for example. Um, but on the, in the credit spread market, clearly there's been an impact. We had a large domestic industrial global name struggle uh, their stock significantly, and then that's translated into their bond market, how that's really hit. We've seen high-yield bonds prices fall, their yields increase. And I just want to clarify for our listeners who don't study the bond market every day, when we talk about spreads, we're talking about the the interest rate differential between the high yield bond market versus the benchmark 10-year treasury. Or when we say investment grade spreads, we're talking about investment grade less the yield on the 10-year treasury. So those spreads have increased. And when corporate credit spreads increase, that tends to be a concern that investors in corporate bonds are demanding higher yields for the extra risk they're taking on. And that's, you know, because of concerns, whether it's slowing global growth or uh, any, any questions about the underlying companies. We do want to emphasize, though, that what we've seen from corporations tightening up their income statements over the last decade, so any hint of sales growth, which is now, what, 9 or 10 percent? Yep. Um, any hint of sales growth trickles down that much faster to the bottom line. And uh, uh, fortress balance sheets that we've seen over the past decade, I really don't see the underlying foundation of U.S. corporations' financials crumbling by any stretch. I, I do see the energy spreads, you know, energy is the largest portion of the high yield bond market index. So as energy spreads are rising relative to falling oil prices, I think that's having an overall impact plus that large industrial household name uh, that's weighing in. But we should point out to investors that, for example, if investment grade spreads have climbed from, let's call it three and a half percent to four percent on average over the past few months, 4% is about average over the long term. Now, again, this is something that we have to be so mindful of over the past decade with the Fed having artificially suppressed the short end of interest rates and and treasury curves. Just because we're back up to 4%, you know that's that's the long term average, so that's something we need to be mindful of. No, that's that's more comforting, I think, when you put it from that point of view. And I hear you know high yield spreads. I think back to 2015 when high yield spreads started forecasting some concern, and obviously at that point we had a I think it was a 14.2 percent correction on the S and P 500 into uh, early February, which is I like to say everyone's got their 1987 moment. Mine was I started at LPL January 9th of 2016, and if you remember correctly back then. It was a violent pullback, and energy stocks and financial stocks were all hit in half. A lot of small caps are down 30%. Again, you can go back and look at some of those spreads on high yield and corporates, and there were the concerns in 2015. It didn't lead to a quote-unquote bear market. Again, S&P down 14%, but you look under the surface, 
over half the stocks in the S&P 500 were down over 20%. Right, right. And that's like recently, I saw some stats recently that about half the stocks in the S&P 500 actually are down, or recently have been down as much as 20% from the recent peak, even though the S&P 500 is nowhere near that. And right. again, it's because of the energy names and some of those more hit names under the surface that are, I guess you could say, skewing that. So it's kind of a hidden bear market, I guess we could call it. But Overall, you know, the earnings are continuing to be strong, and we've talked a lot about that. You know, globally, maybe, John, you didn't see this question coming, but you mentioned Germany, and that, that sparked something. Last week, both mm-hmm. Germany and Japan had negative GDP numbers for the third quarter, and I think it caught some people off guard. I mean, those are the third and fourth largest global economies in the world. What, um, what do you think? Is, is that another well, major warning sign that Germany yeah, and, and uh, Japan are flashing that? There are a few things going on, and, and trade. Mm-hmm. We haven't even discussed China and uh, the trade dispute yet. Right. To the degree businesses have slowed down investment. We saw a growth of approximately 10% in business investment uh, the first half of the year, and then in the third quarter it was a fraction of that, maybe 80 basis points, less than 1% growth in business investment during the third quarter. And I think you saw some of that impact globally when you saw rising input costs, the possibility for disruption in supply chains. A lot of things Mm -hmm. uh, contributed to global growth really kind of slowing down in the third quarter. And I really believe that the the trade tensions are really slowing, dampening CEO confidence globally to the degree that that slowed growth in the third quarter. Now, each of those countries have their own issues to deal with structurally in Japan and then Germany with you know, the challenges that we talked about when we'll get into a little bit more in Brexit. But the tariff situation certainly is weighing. But I do want to conclude on the credit spread area yes. that we must must be mindful as investors, not traders, but as investors, that spreads are low compared to the historical averages, mm-hmm. if not approaching historical averages. Companies' financials, we believe, are still very, very strong. And ability to service debt given strong free cash flow, is still a very, very positive development when you look at free cash flow at cycle highs. So spreads are rising, yes, but they're back to historically average levels. So I think that's what the big takeaway should be for our listeners. No, great points there. So I'll just wrap it up like this on the Germany and uh, Japan weak GDP third, uh, third quarter numbers. You know, were they one-time instances? You look at Japan, they had massive flooding, natural disasters across their country to the north and to the south, and that obviously played a big part. You talk about Germany for a second. They had new car emissions that came out. I mean, Germany, what are they known for? You know, exporting cars. Auto emission standards. And, right? and that really hurt them. So, you know, there's two sides to every coin, right? So the, the one is that, hey, these are one-time offs, and if the fourth quarter is weak again, then that's uh, that's a pattern, but we're not quite seeing that yet. And we're still looking, as we're writing our 2019 outlook, we're still looking for, call it 3.5%, percent global GDP, which is pretty consistent with what we're seeing in uh, calendar 2018 as well. So we're, we're mindful of all those risks, and we're paying very, very close attention. But it's very curious to you, right, the, the natural disasters in Japan and then the adjustment from the stricter auto emission standards exactly. certainly affected both of those countries. So, John, maybe let's finish it up like this. I see we've got maybe two or three more minutes to go. But let's talk about Brexit for a minute here. I mean, I'm hearing about hard Brexit. I'm hearing about soft Brexit. You know, it's in the news again. Tell us your thoughts on Brexit. Maybe just for the listeners, what is hard Brexit? What is soft Brexit? What does that mean, and what do you think is going to happen here? 
Uh, hard Brexit is no deal with the European Union. Uh, soft Brexit Brexit is a bad deal with the European <laughs> Union. <you> so <laughs> <laughs> that's the choice, unfortunately, that's facing uh, leadership in the UK. And given the resignations, and that's why last Thursday mm-hmm. we saw the pound have its worst day, I believe, since June of 2016, yeah. when the uh, original deal uh, was voted upon. But Theresa May's government is in a very, very difficult spot. You know, it's curious. We've had about a dozen uh, members of parliament uh, resign over the past week or so. Half a dozen have resigned. Another half a dozen are threatening to resign. Wow. Okay. But to have a no-confidence vote, I think you need something along the lines of 48. And I don't think they're necessarily close just yet to have uh, to really put Theresa May's government at risk. But nonetheless, it's something we have to be mindful of over the next week. Uh, You know, Boris Johnson was a clear Brexiteer, and he resigned from the government. His brother, Joe Johnson, is uh, a Remainer, and he's also resigning (laughs) because he didn't like to see what what, what was in the new plan. So you're you're looking at at even division within a political family, and that's how challenging it is what you're seeing throughout throughout the country there and how, how the U.K. is trying to really wrestle with the many, many demands emanating from Brussels that is obviously causing a great deal of concern in the UK. When we heard David Cameron speak last summer, mm-hmm. former UK prime minister, he was very, very insightful. He spoke at an event that Ryan and I attended. And the whole idea there is, you know, people are watching very, very closely. Uh, it's conceivable Theresa May's government does not survive this. It's conceivable you have an 11th hour vote and there is no Brexit. And if that were to be the case, companies have been preparing for Brexit right. for the better part of two or three years, and then those plans get into. And it's an, it's an immigration issue. It is a has to deal with the flow of labor and capital across borders. The Northern Ireland border is a big deal. So it's conceivable. I guess the, the pound sterling is probably trading about $1.26, $1.27 right now. It's conceivable it blows through 120 on a no-deal Brexit, and that, I'm afraid, would be total chaos. So I think... The, the bet Theresa May's government is, let's go with a bad deal as opposed to no deal. Yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, last week, the pound and the euro both hit their lowest level since June 2017. But you think about it. I mean, should this be easy for the U.K. to do? Of course not. If it's easy for the U.K. to do, that opens the door potentially for a lot more countries to go do this. They, the, you know, the EU wants this to be hard. It wants this to be a mess. Or other countries might do this with the populist risings that we've been seeing. Also, John, don't forget, U.K. makes up 4% of the global GDP. So that's not something we should ignore. It's not, a, it's not a huge significant in the whole scheme of things, too. But 4% is enough that we should pay attention. So it's, no a, doubt. it's a big and the, deal there. And the banking situation as well, right? Because U.K. banks are some of the largest in the world, and that's something we have to be mindful of. But also mm-hmm. recognize, and this is kind of the curious aspect of it, the FTSE 100, the U.K. stock market index, post-June 2016, the FTSE was doing very well right. in spite of the weak pound. And the weak p- pound obviously played to the benefit of the largest UK companies, which are multinationals in banking and oil, for example, and they do very well with the weak currency. Remember that the the euro is not used by the, the UK. That's still a pound sterling. So for the European Union, we learned so much about Greece and heard so much about Greece over the past five or six years because they didn't want to have a path, the European Union did not want to have a path, the Eurozone area did not want to have a path for a currency-using country to exit. But you also don't want a a union member, trade Mm -hmm. block, not the currency block, you don't want someone to be able to exit because then suddenly that's some of the Eastern European 
countries that could blow out, and they don't want to have that as well. And the Italy situation, third or fourth largest credit market in the world, that's why Greece was so important for so long. So for all those reasons, we continue to be favor the U.S. and emerging markets over developed markets because uh, certainly the, the growing nationalism, growing populism, struggling governments, it's very curious that when I look back over the last 30 years, it's the emerging markets probably have more stable governments for the first time in my career than than developed markets or so-called advanced economies. That's saying something. Um, so you maybe I'll wrap it up like this, John, and you can bring us home. I was reading Barron's over the weekend. There's an article, end of the euro could be closer than you think. You know, that can train in me when I see articles like that. That's pretty negative, right? So the U.S. dollar being strong, maybe there's potentially some type of a low that could happen in the euro with any good news whatsoever uh, out of Europe and with the U.S. dollar. Most people are looking for a stronger dollar, but the U.S. maybe some conversation for future podcasts, but maybe pull the brakes back a little bit and other parts of the world start to influence, you know, using fiscal policy and monetary policy. Maybe they, their currencies can finally start to go a little higher. But the bottom line, John, I've been here almost three years, like you said. We haven't we being LPL Research have not been big, big bulls on Europe and developed markets for that whole time. Unfortunately, that's played out, and we just continue to see a lot more worries, a lot more negatives and positives, I guess, when it comes to developing European economies versus the U.S. and the emerging market economies, which I know is a big theme in our 2019 outlook, which we're working on right now. So, John, I had a lot of fun today. Next week, we'll be taking a break from our normal weekly podcast because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Please tune in the following week where we will pick back up and continue talking about market signals. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving again. A safe week, time with uh, loved ones, and uh, be sure to be safe when traveling. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay connected by following us on Twitter, at LPL, or at LPL Research. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. LPL Market Signals is presented and produced by LPL Financial. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide or to construed as providing specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual security. Any economic forecast set forth in this podcast may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee the strategies promoted will be successful. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of principal. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee return or eliminate risk in all market environments. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. This research material was prepared by LPL Financial, LLC, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, and SIPC. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered independent investment advisor, please note that LPL Financial is not an affiliate of and makes no representation with respect to such entity. The investment products sold through LPL Financial are not insured deposits and are not FDIC, NCUA insured. These products are not bank credit union obligations and are not endorsed, recommended, or guaranteed by any bank, credit union, or any government agency. The value of this investment may fluctuate. The return on the investment is not guaranteed and loss of principal is possible.